Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting and rules for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. That's right. Millions of kids in kindergarten through third grade in the United States cannot read at grade level. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word GRADE to 323232 right now. Hooked on Phonics is highly effective and incredibly fun, and everything can be done right from home and in less than 20 minutes a day. For more than 30 years, Hooked on Phonics has been the proven learn-to-read program that kids love to use. Text GRADE to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text GRADE to 323232 right now and get started for just $1. Text GRADE to 323232 now. Text GRADE to 323232. CannabisRadio.com presents Grassroots Marketing on Location, featuring exclusive one-on-one interviews with those impacting and evolving the cannabis industry. This is Adrian Collum reporting for CannabisRadio.com from the Cannabinoid 2019 Conference in Berlin, Germany, hosted by the International Association for Cannabinoid Medicines. I'm speaking with Dr. Ethan Russo, who is Director of Research and Development at the International Cannabis and Cannabinoids Institute. Dr. Russo was speaking here on where we are and where we're going with cannabis, um, in particular about the challenges for research. Um, and I wanted to ask about his talk um, and if he could share a little bit about that topic with our audience. Dr. Russo, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, it's a difficult topic because there are always challenges. I've been working in the cannabis space for 23 years. And it may surprise people that although we've made a certain degree of progress, uh, it remains the case that uh, this is a very difficult endeavor. There continue to be considerable roadblocks to research, mainly political in nature, but methodological as well. With regards to the latter, we have an increasing problem in that the, the prevailing paradigm of medical proof is the randomized controlled trial. Basically, this means that we're testing an active drug against a placebo and looking for significant differences. The problem is, over the course of the decades, placebo responses have increased uh, such that even for a drug that works, it becomes difficult to show salient differences between it and the placebo. This is compounded in a situation where we're relying only on the patient's 
subjective response to the drug. In other words, if we're treating pain, all we have to go on is their say-so about how they feel. We don't have a pain meter uh, that we can apply, and it's not so simple as killing a bacterial uh, infection, which we can show with laboratory tests. So that's one problem. The second would be with any drug that's psychoactive, uh, which clearly is the case with most preparations of cannabis. Um, this is additionally compounded by the fact that, rightly or wrongly, there's a reputation out there that cannabis is miraculous. Under these conditions, many patients are going to feel that uh, they have a real opportunity here to try a miracle drug. Everyone will then think that they're getting the real thing and they will respond accordingly. The mind is a very powerful thing, and if someone thinks that they're getting a powerful drug, they're going to respond in any event. Isn't that um, something that can be um, apprehended with um, blinding? Well, yeah, that's a necessary part of a randomized control trial, but uh, blinding also is problematic, particularly for a study of inhaled cannabis, where there are peaks of psychoactivity, uh, high, if you will, which can be really obvious to people. Uh, if people are aware that uh, they're intoxicated um, and they know that the placebo shouldn't do this, uh, it's really going to skew the results and may really invalidate them. Okay, what are some other strategies to um, get around this issue? Sure. Well, uh, one is to use a preparation of cannabis that uh, isn't overtly psychoactive. And uh, this would mean that it either has a lower amount of THC or really is predominantly composed of other components that aren't overtly psychoactive. So that's one. Another way would be administering it orally rather than, than by inhalation. With this, there's a slower absorption into the body and brain and less likelihood of intoxicating side effects that might give away uh, the farm, so to speak, in terms of uh, whether they're on a real drug versus the placebo. Um, I've heard, uh, I think it was Dr. Goldstein mentioned um, that the therapeutic dose should be below the intoxicating dose, at least Certainly. in most patients. Some patients require that large um, effect. Right. Um, yeah, this, this really bears uh, emphasis. When people are using cannabis therapeutically, it really is the case of looking to become intoxicated or produce any degree of change of their mental status. What people really want is to treat their pain or other symptoms. Um, and what is not commonly known is that there often is a sweet spot with a particular form of formulation of cannabis such that you can effectively treat the symptoms without alterations in consciousness that uh, may be undesirable. Sure. Um, so undesirable that it's a large fear of governments and doctors everywhere that this high will lead to psychosis and schizophrenia. And uh, I guess I've had psychiatrists say to me recently that one quarter of the population will have a bad reaction to a small amount of cannabis and the next quarter will have a bad reaction to a moderate amount of cannabis, like a psychotic reaction. Um, how does that fit in? Uh, it doesn't. That's uh, a vast exaggeration of the situation. Let's emphasize what we know. If in the at-risk population, 
such as a teenager who has a family history of schizophrenia uses THC. It is true to say that they may unmask at an earlier time <clears throat> their tendency towards psychosis. Um, however, there is no evidence whatsoever that schizophrenia is produced de novo uh, by cannabis exposure. Additionally, we really have to distinguish between recreational use of cannabis, where the aim is to produce intoxication, versus the much lower doses with different intent uh, that is the case with respect to cannabis therapeutics. So these are entirely two different things. Is it true that cannabis improperly used in dose can produce impairment? Absolutely. This is not an issue. Anyone who tells you differently is lying. Uh, but it is also true to say that uh, in properly done medical studies of cannabis therapeutics, uh, we can show no significant uh, impairment at, at normal doses. Okay. So the risk of triggering someone who is predisposed to schizophrenia is there, but as far as the general population, that's not an issue. Right. There was a study done some years ago in the UK where they estimated uh, how many people might need to stop cannabis to prevent one case of schizophrenia, and it was uh, something like uh, 5,000 for men and uh, maybe 8,000 for women, uh, which is beyond ridiculous. In other words, you could stop the use of cannabis entirely and you'd make no difference whatsoever uh, in the incidence of schizophrenia. Additionally, we, we have public health data that disproves this assertion. If we look at the uh, prevalence of schizophrenia in the 1960s before cannabis uh, really became prevalent in its recreational usage, and we look at, at the uh, prevalence of schizophrenia now, it's actually gone down a little bit, where you would expect a huge increase considering the vast increases in recreational use of cannabis. Uh, so uh, there has to be some cause and effect to make the assertion that it's dangerous in this regard. And I'll say flatly that we're aware, aware of the risks. We recommend that people with a family history uh, avoid cannabis uh, or at least uh, use it at very small doses uh, at a later age, not in young teenage populations, certainly. And possibly with some CBD or other cannabinoids to uh, exactly. combat the right. of the THC. So raise an interesting point. Um, Whereas there is this concern about THC in relation to exacerbating uh, schizophrenic tendency, another component of cannabis, that being cannabidiol or CBD, has successfully been used in two phase two clinical trials to treat schizophrenia and with many fewer side effects than conventional drugs. Fantastic. Um, Dr. Russo, uh, we're at a conference full of doctors and researchers, and I guess the researchers are all um, in the same situation in that they're trying to get funding to do multi-million dollar clinical trials. And I've heard more than once this weekend that a lot of the companies don't want to venture ahead to do the clinical trials because they feel that they'll be breaking the ground for other companies, for their competitors, and it's millions of dollars invested. What would you say to these researchers and what would you say to these companies? Well, with the researchers, they need to be creative. 
Um, unfortunately, governmental funding institutions such as the National Institutes of Health in the United States, which has traditionally been uh, one of the main funders of biomedical research, have fallen down uh, on the job due to inadequate uh, funds. Traditionally, they would fund about 36% of applications. That's down to about 6%. So your chances are very low unless you have an established track record or part of the good old boys network. It took me 22 years to get my first NIH grant. Uh, now I've got two, fortunately. Um, but we can't rely on that. Uh, additionally, studies in the United States are severely restricted to one source of cannabis, which is not standardized and not representative of the full potential of cannabis out there. So then it falls upon private industry uh, to fill in the gap. We have over 200 licensed producers of cannabis now in Canada, but their main thrust has been towards one of two things, either recreational cannabis or some doing studies of an observational nature. So these can show a signal that maybe cannabis helps with a given condition, but they don't represent medical proof uh, to the gold standard, which is the randomized controlled trial uh, with placebo comparators, uh, et cetera. Those studies are extremely expensive, um, and there's uh, not much of an incentive for companies to pursue that unless they have a unique formulation that they with which they wish to pursue a pharmaceutical development program. That, uh, we're looking at hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to complete that, perhaps uh, seven to 10 years. Uh, so it's not for the faint of heart uh, in any event, and this explains why there have been so few gold standard studies. Is it true that if, for example, one company or one academic institute broke the ground, say they did a clinical trial of cannabis for ADHD or epilepsy or whatever condition, and they broke that ground, they proved efficacy and safety, that other companies could then move in and use that research to support their own sale of similar products or Perhaps. identical products? Yeah. Each preparation has to prove its value on, on its own merits. Um, but uh, some techniques, some formulations are subject to patent protection. Patent is meaningless unless you have the resources to defend it. So there are going to be a lot of attorneys who uh, remain employed uh, because of this kind of issue. Um, but uh, it's a complex problem, and that is a fear from a business sense. Um, however, uh, my philosophy on this is the, the parent that the patient's needs are paramount uh, and that uh, these things deserve funding and pursuit uh, for the sake of reducing the burden of disease. Absolutely. And just, again, for the researchers out there who might be looking at the requirements to get regulatory approval for a research drug, what are some ways that they could cut down their clinical trial design to a lean and mean version that, it, that isn't going to cost them $10 million, maybe it costs them one point five or something like this? Well, Is there a way to do that? Not really. There aren't any shortcuts here. Okay. Uh, you know, impeccability is uh, at the top of the list of requirements. Absolutely. Uh, it is a tick box exercise to the extent that does take the U.S. Food and Drug Administration uh, for the United States, um, they're a very by-the-book organization. 
they don't create any special roadblocks, but it's it's clear to everyone uh, what the roadmap is and uh, how you get there. Um, the only shortcuts would come about through uh, treatment of an orphan drug uh, condition. In other words, if you have a condition, I believe the number is uh, where under 250,000 people in the United States are affected with a certain disease, um, you get special consideration and a shorter path. Or if you have a condition where there is no conventional therapy that treats it, an example would be motor neuron disease or uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, uh, which is a terminal condition with no uh, useful therapy, Um, that can get fast-tracked. But it might mean you cut a year or two off the 7 to 10. So what would you say are the conditions that you think might attract these sorts of massive investments? What, What... what medicines might be developed and what might they be used to treat in sure. the future? Well, things like metastatic cancer, uh, basically almost irrespective of the tissue type, if someone has uh, recurrent metastatic cancer, we don't have curative treatments. Uh, actually, cannabis-based medicine shows great promise in this situation, and we have many anecdotal references to people eradicating uh, their cancer involvement with prolonged survival. Uh, so this is intriguing, uh, but this hasn't been demonstrated in large uh, clinical trials, and that needs to happen. Uh, any other terminal condition or some rare genetic diseases uh, would also qualify for fast-tracking or sure. orphan drug. What about non-fast-tracking? What would you say are the main conditions that could attract, say, $10 million or $100 million um, uh, to uh, develop a medicine and treat these? Well, pain is always the top condition uh, for which people use cannabis medicine. Uh, But it's got to be more specific than that. Um, You know, uh, say, rheumatoid arthritis, um, osteoarthritis, um, and th- neither of these are rare, uh, but certainly um, with the number of people involved, they should be attractive targets for this kind of therapy. Okay, and uh, just one last question. What would you say to patients or even researchers involved with, say, a less widespread condition or one that isn't likely to get this sort of enormous funding to do clinical trials at this point? I mean, I guess there's patients out there who have unmet medical need from pharmaceutical drugs who would be hoping that clinical trials might happen and that their governments and doctors might approve them for these medicines, but it seems like a long way away. Uh, Well, one avenue in that situation would be through uh, patient support groups. Uh, Let's take an example um, like uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. it's sort of counterintuitive to most people that cannabis would help this condition, but people who have it, who have tried it, find it remarkably effective. So one strategy there would be for patients and their families to band together and try and uh, do a survey at least, or even an observational study where they're able to show a signal that a cannabis-based medicine is helpful. Then they could take that to a drug company 
uh, with the hope that uh, they would then be interested in funding. Sure. Uh, because this is a very common condition um, uh, that's inadequately treated by conventional drugs. So Sativex was trialed. Sativex was trialed for ADHD in 30 patients, 15 active, 15 placebo, and it had effect sizes similar to Ritalin for inattentive symptoms and better than Ritalin's clinical trials for hyperactive symptoms, but it was such a small group that they would need to replicate it in a larger sample group. Sure. So there is basically cl basic clinical evidence for ADHD, but getting to the point where someone's willing to fund a large-scale clinical trial based on these preliminary evidence is, uh, seems like a giant, giant track ahead. Right. Again, uh, the primary explanation of that is the, the cost. Companies in this situation tend to prioritize one thing over another. Um, and uh, although that's certainly, those are worthy results of follow-up, but uh, it doesn't surprise me at all that, that none has happened because it's been more than 10 years since there was a positive signal in a small study of Sativex and uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and there's been no follow-up whatsoever. Dr. Russo, thank you for joining us this morning on CannabisRadio.com. That's been a very interesting and insightful interview. My pleasure. Cheers. Opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.